Hello and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction. My name is Philippe Naren and I'm joined as always by Fergal Armstrong. In the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we're going to be talking yet again about LAIBs and also about some of the situations where prescribing LAIBs may be a bit difficult to assess and we will share our strategies and opinions on how to manage patients where some of the complexities may be a bit complicated in some situations. So Fergal, what's your opinion and view on managing a patient who presents intoxicated and is due for their LAIB injection? Yeah, that's a, that is a difficult question. Um, first of all, how do you know that the patient is intoxicated, right? And if the patient is intoxicated, due to what drug are they intoxicated? So bear in mind, we're talking about a population of patients with opioid use disorder who experience significant comorbidity and potentially could be developing encephalopathy, could have a head injury and developing a subdural hematoma, could be intoxicated with other, other substances. And so these are all possible reasons for presentations of intoxication. So you need to be very careful in diagnosing intoxication. And I would suggest that really, unless you are experienced in um, making that decision, making that diagnosis, then you should really be referring the patient to someone more expert in the management of, of opioid use disorder and possibly even referring to ED. You don't want to be caught out treating someone with LAIB and they've developed a subdural hematoma and then, you know, two weeks later they, they find dead. Um, but assuming that the patient is actually intoxicated because of opioids, then think about the Tmax. So remember, for LAIB, the Tmax of Buvidal monthly is six hours roughly. And for weekly Buvidal and for Sublocade, it's, it's 24 hours. And compare that with the Tmax of um, sublingual buprenorphine, which can be one to four hours. So, you know, within one hour, you'd have the full effect. So, but previously with sublingual buprenorphine, we would withhold that dose because we don't actually want to be adding a, an opioid to someone who's, who's already intoxicated. But with the LAIB, because the Tmax is delayed, we know that the concentration or the peak concentration of the LAIB is going to be delayed beyond the duration of intoxication. So theoretically, there's no indication for actually withholding injection to someone who's intoxicated, so long as you understand your kinetics, your patient, and you know what the diagnosis is. Absolutely. And that's certainly my practice as well. The biggest worry in delaying an injection or not giving an injection is that you lose a patient to follow up and yeah. then that they will engage in more hazardous risk-taking substance mm. use behavior. So absolutely, my practice is very similar to yours. Uh, as yeah. long as I've excluded an organic cause for an altered conscious state, uh, I would not use uh, intoxication with opioid use as a reason to withhold an injection. Yeah, so it does actually... Fertile, Sorry, it does actually give you a reason to kind of more closely monitor the patient and put in other psychosocial supports, but it doesn't give you, it's not necessarily a reason, as you say, to uh, withhold, withhold the injection. Absolutely. Now, Fergal, a lot of the patients that we see do have chronic disease, and sometimes the, the patients who would be eligible for LAIB do have significant liver disease, 
and may have child QC cirrhosis, for example, and mm. some patients may have significant cardiorespiratory disease as well. Yeah. Yeah. Now, these are known contraindications, as we've mentioned on previous episodes, to buprenorphine. What would your approach be to a patient who is requesting LAIB but does have one of these conditions? So if we look at liver disease, that's the, the perhaps the commonest issue that we find in clinical practice. So child PUC is a clinic is a is a contraindication. And I would also argue that if you're acutely encephalopathic, well, you know, that's also a contraindication. Uh, if you've got signs of decompensated liver disease, so you know, uh, jaundice, ascites, varices, and encephalopathy. However, it doesn't mean that all patients with cirrhosis are contraindicated LAIB, and it doesn't mean that anyone with liver disease is contraindicated LAIB. So you need to choose the patient carefully. And in, in, in situations where you feel that the benefits of being on the LAIB outweigh the risks, I would then go low and slow. So, you know, you could suggest a longer bridging time with uh, sublingual buprenorphine, and I would use uh, low-dose buvidal, and I would use weekly doses. So instead of putting someone onto 24 to 32 milligrams of weekly Brivadel, or for that matter, Sublocade, I would give them weekly doses of maybe eight milligrams. And I would see them every week after I, having reviewed them frequently during a prolonged bridging phase. The temptation is always there to be heroic and to escalate doses rapidly to achieve that magical word of control, to, to let patients control their or to get them to stop uh, using illicit opioids, but you don't get rewards for having dead patients. So it's better to have an uncontrolled dead, uh, uncontrolled live patient who's being slowly titrated onto LAIB than otherwise would be, and it would be a disaster. That's a very pragmatic and realistic approach to take, Fergal, mm. because ultimately there are contraindications. There are things we need to be cautious about but we also live in the real world. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of the patients we see are not textbook patients and not everyone fits into nice little columns and we have mm -hmm. to meet patients to, as to where they are. Yeah. And sometimes it's about looking at risks and risk profile. Yes, there is some chronic medical conditions going on, but yes, there is also risky uh, substance use behavior also co-occurring where can I tread this line to be a safe and responsible prescriber, not cause the patient harm, but not also exacerbate the ill health that they're suffering from as well? And as we've mentioned, a lot of the times in these situations, uh, the cautious approach, the safe approach is the one to take, but also leaning on colleagues, checking if the prescribing is appropriate and is, and is what someone else would do in your situation is also probably a prudent idea as well. But I wholeheartedly agree with that pragmatic approach of, of harm minimization and meeting the patient where they're at. I think I need to clarify one of the points I said, you know, it's better to have someone who's uncontrolled and alive. And that is always the case. But some doctors feel that they're doing their patients a disservice by, by limiting the dose because they're not giving them enough. But you've got to understand that with liver disease, you, it's not that they can't tolerate. It's not just that they cannot necessarily tolerate the dose. But it's it's just that they don't they don't get rid of the dose. So we know that liver disease increases the area under the curve of exposure to buprenorphine. So actually, a dose of maybe thirty two that would do you and me well 
would would give us and would give us a certain area under the curve. We could, you can achieve that same area under the curve, which represents exposure, cumulative cumulative exposure. You can achieve that same curve with a dose of only eight milligrams weekly of in, in a patient with significant liver disease. So you're not doing the patient a disservice. You're giving them the same exposure to the drug, the plasma buprenorphine concentration over time, with a low dose, as you would give another patient with normal liver function with a higher dose. Absolutely. With another situation that sometimes we find ourselves in as well, and this is another special circumstance, what's your approach to pregnant women and LAIBs? We know that both uh, Buvidal and Sublocate are category C in pregnancy. For a woman who is pregnant, do you have any other thought processes and risk assessments that you do before prescribing LAIBs? Yeah. So pregnancy is, all, are, is fraught with, with concern. So you need to understand, and mums need to understand, the risks of uh, opioid exposure in pregnancy, the risks of opioid withdrawal in pregnancy, and the risk of harm to baby with the medication that we treat this condition with. So we know that um, people with ongoing opioid use uh, have small babies with small heads. And we, and we know that uh, treatment with buprenorphine increases birth weight and increases head circumference without an increase in teratogenicity. That's the key thing. There's, no, there's not known to be any increase in teratogenicity. And we also know that um, buprenorphine therapy prevents withdrawal. And we know that withdrawal is harmful for baby, especially in the first trimester when it's associated with miscarriage and the loss of the, of the uh, products of conception. And we know that it also causes stillbirths in the latter trimester. So in the second trimester, it's less risky, but it's still an issue. So the, the bottom line is that opioid withdrawal can significantly harm, if not kill, baby. And we know that there is a risk with buprenorphine of um, a, a neonatal abstinence syndrome. But the key thing with that is it's much less common than with other treatments such as methadone. And secondly, it's not dose dependent. And that's really important for mums to understand. The treatment with buprenorphine increases birth weight, increases head circumference, reduces the risk of miscarriage, and has a risk of neonatal abstinence syndrome that is not dose dependent. So lowering the dose of buprenorphine during pregnancy is not going to improve the chances of avoiding neonatal abstinence syndrome. Having explained all of that to mum, the, the, you know, if you want to induct people onto uh, buprenorphine, you know, most people in pregnancy would be inducted onto um, sublingual buprenorphine. Um, throughout pregnancy, there are significant changes in, in body composition, and also there are significant changes in enzyme function. And it may be the case that as pregnancy evolves, that mums don't feel as controlled uh, with a given dose of buprenorphine. And so what do you do in that situation? So um, you can either increase the dose of buprenorphine or you can split doses of buprenorphine, or you could consider transitioning onto long-acting uh, injectable buprenorphine. Or for that matter, if you wanted to, you could, you could, in, in, you could induct directly onto long-acting injectable buprenorphine without even doing any bridging according to the, the ways that we've discussed previously. 
But the key thing is that LAIB is a, is a valid option in pregnancy. It's just another way of delivering buprenorphine. It's no different from, remember, the buprenorphine in LAIB is no different from that in sublingual buprenorphine. And in clinical practice, I feel it gives a smoother experience. And it, it, it again, it minimizes the peaks and troughs that would be experienced otherwise with sublingual buprenorphine. So I think it gives a smoother journey throughout pregnancy. It's category C. So its use can only be, it, it can only be used when the benefits outweigh the risks. And we know, we know what the risks of withdrawal are. And we know what the benefits of buprenorphine are. We know what the benefits of LAIB are. So I think it's quite obvious. The, there are some, Absolutely. there are some issues with, uh, you know, the excipients. You know, there was some concern with some of the excipients for in, um, LAIB, in particular N-methylperilidone, which is the solvent. For, and it's present in both buvidal and sublocate. But it's reassuring to know that the, the no adverse event level for NMP is much, much higher than the no adverse event level of buprenorphine. So effectively, we know that the harms associated with massive doses of buprenorphine, we know what they are. And we also know that the, the, the harm level for NMP is much, much higher. So really, what I'm trying to say is in pregnancy, NMP is actually safer than the active drug buprenorphine. So I, I don't really have any significant concerns in using LAIB in pregnancy, subject to the pre-agreed contraindications, which go back to child PUC, liver disease, uh, allergy, and also significant respiratory disease. Yeah. No, I think that's a, that's a fair approach, Fergal. Now, something I've seen a bit in, in my clinical practice is patients who are concerned about the management of pain when they're on LAIB yeah. and acute pain issues that might arise while they're on LAIB. Do you have an approach with regards to this and, and how you approach the patients who might be, A, develop an acute pain issue or develop a bit more chronic pain over the course of their LAIB treatment? Yeah. So I think it is a specialist area of practice. And I think if you've got acute pain on LAIB, and if it's, if it's anything above mild pain that can be treated with you know, simple analgesics or, or uh, you know, anti-inflammatories, then I think you do need to seek expert advice. And there are various sources of that expert advice, including acute uh, hospital-based acute pain services. And also in Victoria, the Drug and Alcohol Clinical Advisory Service and various other telephone advisory services in all other states in uh, Australia. So the key thing is you need to take expert advice. However, there are some principles that apply. So we know that, that the analgesic effect of buprenorphine is, is, is as good as the analgesic effect of other opioids. Just because it's a partial agonist doesn't mean it's a partial analgesic. But in the context of acute pain, there is a need for more uh, um, new agonism. There's two approaches. You can either use uh, higher doses of any mu agonist and just expect to treat the patient as opioid tolerant. And so you could get away with just using higher doses of uh, oxycodone, or otherwise known as endone. Another approach is to consider the uh, the P, the, sorry, the Ki, which is the inhibitory constant. Now, the inhibitory constant is a measure of the clinginess of, a, of an agonist to the mu receptor. Remember, we said that buprenorphine has got high avidity for the mu receptor, so it's got a very low Ki. Endone oxycodone has got a very K, has got a very high Ki, so therefore it's very easy for buprenorphine to displace oxycodone from the mu receptor, which is why if you're using oxycodone for pain, you need to use higher doses, because you remember this is even though there's high avidity at the mu receptor, this effect 
for, for buprenorphine, this, this high avidity of buprenorphine can be overcome with higher doses of, of oxycodone. But a second way of thinking about it is to use a drug or an opioid that has an equally low KI, so can has a, has a fighting chance in a fist fight with buprenorphine. And these drugs include hydromorphone, fentanyl, and morphine. So if you use these opioids, they're more likely to stay on the mu receptor. And so you're more likely to get the analgesic effect of a full agonist at, at, or the higher, higher dose full agonist. Those are theoretical cons uh, thoughts around managing oral opioids or, for that matter, parenteral opioids in the situation of acute pain. But you have to bear in mind that, you know, if you're on a Bruvidal or Sublocade, you're, you're pretty much filling in a lot of receptors. So it really does behove you to consider multimodal analgesia. So that means local anesthetic medication, anti-inflammatories, adjunct medication like the gabapentinoids or ketamine or even uh, lidocaine infusions. And then, of course, good old Panadol. Don't ever forget Panadol and acute pain. So it's a specialist area. Take advice. But you can use higher doses than, of uh, oxycodone or you can use um, what are known as super agonists. That's uh, very useful information, Fergal. And one of the final special circumstances that I can think of in particular is heart arrhythmias or irregular heartbeats. Yeah. We do know that high levels of buprenorphine can increase the QT interval as well. What's your approach to patients who may be at risk of cardiac arrhythmias who are on long-acting injectable buprenorphine? Is there any specific advice or specific techniques or tests that you do to, to monitor for complications potentially? Yeah, so actually, paradoxically, even though there is this concern of QT with buprenorphine, actually, I use buprenorphine to manage opioid dependence or acute pain in patients who have prolonged QT due to other opioids. So we know, for instance, that methadone really does prolong the QT, and we know that oxycodone can uh, prolong the QT. Um, but if, you, if you've got someone who's, who's at risk of QT prolongation, remember, it's not just the opioid that does it. There are so many other factors, including electrolyte disturbances and underlying disease processes that can contribute to QT prolongation. So you need to understand what's causing it, and you need to treat all of the reversible causes, not just deal with the opioid. But if someone's got an issue with QT prolongation, I perhaps would get cardiology advice before I would start them on long-acting injectable buprenorphine. I'd keep them on lower doses of sublingual buprenorphine until they've got clearance. Uh, I, I wouldn't dive into high-dose prolonged therapy or exposure to um, buprenorphine via LAIB in that situation without ca uh, cardiac expertise and clearance. Excellent. That's very sound advice. As, as we've said the whole way through this episode and on previous episodes, the most important thing is to prescribe safely and effect, effectively. And that's uh, the, the, the paramount thing to do. Yeah. So we've covered a lot again on this episode of Cracking Addiction, especially dealing with patients who are in special circumstances. And hopefully this has provided a fair bit of advice on how to manage these patients effectively, safely and holistically on LAIB therapy. Thank you once again for your company on this episode and bye for now. Music